Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as the February Room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. You know, other than uh, Bitcoin mining, the one aptitude that I wish I were more adept at is the art of taking a good picture. Alas, my budding photography career uh, came to a screeching halt when an acquaintance dropped my Nikon loaded with slide film in the drink many moons ago, and the digital age rather passed me by until the smartphone came along, spurring the age of the amateur. But really great photography is as rare as it's ever been, and my guest today has one of those unique eyes for imagery that few shutterbugs possess. Abe Blair, welcome to the February Room. Thanks for having me, Justin been a long time yeah man it sure has in in fact um the last time i think i saw you um you had just wrapped up a morning session on the lowered shoots 
And it was, you know, one of those stretches in August where the fishing hadn't been particularly phenomenal by any means. Um, I'd been struggling to find fish. Most of the guides I know had been struggling to find fish. It was just kind of one of those stagnant stretches of hot, you know, dry, sunny weather that's not necessarily conducive to good steelhead fishing. And we ran into you on the access road and uh, you were just coming out of the, I can't remember the name of the run. Um, but anyway, it was uh, on the lower access road there and, and we were chatting with you and you'd hooked four or five fish. I don't remember exactly, but it was, I, did, it was I more... remember that day. That was still one of my best mornings, I think, ever. <laughs> so, so you do remember that? Oh yeah. Clear as day. Okay. Awesome. So. So that was like you'd caught caught more fish than like I'd seen in a week, um, in that that one run. And uh, and anyway, you had uh, you were fishing a real small bug, and and that kind of turned the light on for me. I'm like, all right, well maybe I need to be fishing smaller flies during these conditions, and uh, and from that day henceforth, I kind of, um, you know kind of instilled that philosophy into my repertoire and uh and it works man so thanks you uh you taught me something that day that's just one of those little tidbits you pick up sometimes on the river that uh that sticks with you yeah most definitely i mean you know i i by no means uh i sure as heck didn't didn't come up with that idea myself you know another friend of mine same situation you know gave me a couple of flies that that's what's been working for him and yeah i remember that that was like small like size eights or tens like little bug man very small yep huge river pretty moderately sized fish and then these tiny flies and it was just like really but but uh yeah and i remember that morning just one getting that particular piece of water was always exciting because it was so sought after but then to smash a handful of fish and i think you were running around with johnny z yeah right johnny pulled over actually and i think that's when i first met you and i you know had heard your name and knew the knew the lore but i had not met you yet so i was really stoked to share the water with you guys and and uh, yeah that was really cool man um yeah, that little that, that little fly. Um, yeah, I I started tying a lot of my patterns, just in a yeah in a, in a little like size ten, and um, and you know when the conditions were kind of stagnant, that that works. It uh, it's uh, yeah that that's a technique that that you can kind of keep in your back pocket, man. And uh, I yeah. that was the that was the the first time that I talked to somebody, you know. Uh, mono a mono that was like hey this is what i'm running in these conditions and it's 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 working for me so yeah that was a good tidbit for sure i, I remember just uh, overall on the deschutes I, I felt like i just continuously got lucky with with great introductions and opportunities to work with some really great long time anglers from that river and and you know they shared a lot of you know secrets of theirs that had been learned over decades of fishing so I think at that time I was probably working with uh, the hazels at the time. And, and so that's where that small, small fly technique came in, you know, which was definitely different than what the, the other bend guys were doing. Yep. Yep. No doubt. And, and you were a whitewater guide originally, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I did like, um, overall, I think it was 16 summers consecutively on the Deschutes between whitewater guiding, 
actual guiding, like fly fish guiding, and then um, running camps, which I ended up being kind of my my favorite. Yeah, which is the best gig on the river. Yeah, once I found out that you got equal pay and you didn't have to talk to customers un- until they were hungry <laughs> and, you were, and you were the one feeding them, it was like, yeah, this is a winning situation. And you got to fish all the water as long as nobody saw you. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. It was, yep. it was a great job. Yep. The camp water crook. <laughs> yeah. I, I still fortunate to, to be able to do that nowadays. Actually, I get to the last five years run the camp program at a lodge up in Alaska in uh, August. Oh, cool. So yeah. Yeah. So still, still getting my hands pretty dirty and, and, doing it different up there you know everything's got to fit on a float plane instead of a drift boat we got to stuff it camp into a couple loads in the beaver and fly it out and haul it float it move it but uh it's fun well you got any good bear stories for us oh man countless i mean we we live we live with them i mean um i had a guest last year uh really analytical guy but he counted every day and we ranged between 40 and 80 bears a day that we would see in a 10 mile float. I mean, and I'm not exaggerating, I'm not making any of this up to the sense that it's a common occurrence to go to sleep to the sound of bears walking outside of your tent through the river 20, 30 feet away, and or a bear fight maybe on the other side of the river, you know? So you're tucked into your sleep bag, it started to get dark, and it's just like, rawr, rawr, crashing waves, and it's just like, oh man, I gotta go to sleep, I gotta get up in like five hours and guide clients. I've had clients that won't sleep the whole night, they're just so stressed out. So do you have like a, do you have like a bear fight app on your phone that you can put in there that helps you fall asleep at night? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just, it's just incredible. It's, over the five years, I've learned so much that, you know, they just don't want to eat us. As long as we stay out of their way to get those salmon, it's it's just such a unique immersion that you get to be so close to what appears to be a an apex predator that looks at, looks at us like a, like a squirrel on the sidewalk, you know, just no big deal. Wow, crazy, man. What, uh, what, what rivers do you work on up there? Um, well, the... We do a lot of the trips and the camping is on um, the Moraine. So just an icon classic. Um, and then we've got a couple of other smaller rivers like the Gibraltar and the Copper River for trout. Um, we'll fly over to the Quijack and the Kamishak is an amazing silver fishery. Quite a few different places. It's all fly out with boats stashed all over the place. So. You know, morning, morning and evening commutes in the float plains, and usually a day long float, maybe a four or five mile hike. Well, awesome, man! You've you've carved out a, a, a pretty nice little niche for yourself in this industry. Um, so you're doing that through the month of August, you said? Yep, yep. Yeah, this will be my sixth summer coming up. Pretty excited about it. But but kind of your primary gig is uh, is uh, photography, and um, you know. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, um, back in high school, essentially, I was already a passionate angler, and then I got a camera and a snowboard, and that was sort of the end of formal education <laughs> in life. And rather shortly after high school, moved to a snowboard camp 
and started a business using the brands making new digital cameras that were coming out and photographed uh, the campers and would sell them pictures that we would print on site. And uh, that kind of got me in the, in the door at the industry. And so the summers were spent doing the, uh, the snowboard photographies and then I'd go back to the Deschutes in the, uh, in the summer, you know, seasonally back and forth. And then kind of wore that out about eight or 10 years and focused just on the landscapes after spending so much time in the backcountry just got to know it well and learn how to read weather well. And uh, now I own, co-own with two other amazing partners, the largest uh, gallery in Lake Tahoe. We got like 2,400 square foot, two-story gallery. And, and it's just amazing. Wow. And is that, is the name of that, you know, I, I went onto your, your website's called the A. Bear or the A. Blair Gallery. What's the name of the, of the physical gallery? The physical gallery is called the Alpenglow Gallery. And it's myself, uh, Doug DeVore and Justin Majenski, three uh, like-minded photographers who we've all lived here for a long time and had the opportunity to take over an existing gallery um, that had been there since 2006, take over their space. And so we scrambled and made a, made a business plan real quick, and something we talked about on mountaintops for years and put it into action last summer. Nice. Awesome. And do you guys, now you're um, primarily a landscape photographer. Um, I, I know you shoot a ton of different stuff, but um, but your landscapes are spectacular. Um, so w is that safe to say? Yeah, yeah. So I I, I would say it's, it's all landscapes and any commercial photography that I, I have an opportunity to do is is usually more of like a working vacation you know, get an opportunity to take pictures for a fly fishing company or a TV show or, or, or something along those lines. Um, you know, so it's just sort of a, a side side gig, I'd say. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so what's your what's kind of your approach to, to shooting a landscape? Now, one thing I can stand behind is that smartphones don't shoot good landscape photos. <laughs> So, so uh, yeah, what's your approach? I know you were out shooting this morning before uh, before this recording. So, um, yeah, kind of tell me, kind of tell me what you do. How do you how do you go out and capture those insane images? Um, well, like this morning was a uh, there was a swing somebody had put in a pine tree that I saw on a hike recently, and I knew it lined up well for a springtime sunrise. So I went there first thing this morning, and. Uh, just you know, spent an hour and a half just sort of watching the light. I knew the area really well, so I didn't have to study much. Um, I was just waiting on the, the show from the clouds, uh, which turned out really well and got a nice image. So super excited. I'll be working on it this afternoon when I get into the gallery. But generally my approach is looking for the photos that haven't been shot, going to the places that are familiar visually, but maybe not right where you're standing, or and or applying techniques um, that aren't used, have never been done, um, adopting newer technologies, things like that. I do a lot of the Milky Way photography, which is taking advantage of the low light abilities of these newer digital cameras. And that is a really exciting genre that, you know, is brand new to the industry, you know, over the last decade. Oh, very cool. 
Um, and then as far as uh, as far as the the fly fishing photography goes, now you uh, you do some shooting for for a couple different outfits: fly water travel, uh, catch magazine, and a fishing show. You were telling me about. Can you can you uh, kind of explain that uh, what what you referred to as a side hustle for me? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean. Coming out of the Deschutes, um, I listened to your podcast uh, that you did with Brian O'Keefe, which was great. And you know, oh, I mean, yeah. he always he always delivers. <laughs> well, growing up in Portland, Oregon, you know, he was he was the guy. Everywhere you went, you saw his name on fly fishing photos around the area. So right. when he started the Catch Magazine, I I just reached out and said, "Hey, I'm a I'm a guide. I live on the river. I take pictures. Like, is there anything I can help with?" and I got a couple of little assignments from him and that, that, you know, started a good relationship and got my foot in the door there to the point where he ended up sending me to Chile for, nice. to, in his shoes. Cause he was just returning from a different trip. And that, that introduced me to a lot of other people in the business and lodges and, and then, um, again, coming out of Oregon, the Flywater Travel Gang, you know, uh, Ken Morris and uh, Dave Kalinowski was working there. And uh, uh, another gentleman, I think his name was uh, James from uh, from Deschutes Angler. But just, again, a bunch of old Deschutes Bend, you know, guides started a travel agency called Flywater. And so they reached out to me at some point to see if I wanted to do some photos for them. And that's how I met the owner of the lodge that I get to photograph and work at now is through through going to, on a visit with Flywater Travel and and then again just through association I met um, a gentleman who owns a TV show called Wild Fish Wild Places and so I started out as a just a photographer documenting some of their international fly fishing trips and was kind of in the background behind the scenes off camera and I was always catching fish and and the host kind of was like well what's up with that guy so eventually I got, got to move up to the front of the lens and co-host half a dozen shows a season now. And oh, cool. So yeah, we, you know, we went to the Bahamas recently, Jurassic Lake, uh, Alaska, all kinds of places. Just amazing. COVID really put a kink in things. We had a Africa trip planned and a Golden Dorado trip planned down in South America. Still hoping to get those in maybe next year. Yeah, yeah, COVID's put a damper on the travel, but I tell you what it did for for me and us is uh man, we've uh we've explored a lot of places in our own backyard that we just never got to before. And um, you know, like you there, we are just we're surrounded by water here and um and just getting a chance to go out and go poke around stuff that you've always looked at on a map or heard about and never gotten around to has been really awesome. So there's a bright side to it. Most definitely. Yeah. We've been doing the exact same thing for the TV show, you know, just like, well, we can't fly. We can't leave the country. So I went, we, I, we did a salmon fly trip, um, on the Deschutes, which was fun, revisited the, the old stomping grounds and called up some friends. Um, yeah, it's been nice. Just, yeah. Exploring the, the area. We went on a golden trout trip last year. Yeah. Definitely wouldn't have done that. Um, without the COVID you know, closures. And that ended up to be a great trip. It was really fun to check off that species. Yeah, no doubt. You don't necessarily have to have to punch a passport to go have an awesome fishing adventure. 
Nope, not anymore. It's funny you mentioned uh, Johnny Zaninati, and I'd, I'd forgotten that he was with us that morning. Uh, did you ever happen to see, uh, years ago in the Fly Fishing Film Tour, we had this little snippet in there. It was the final scene of Point Break that was uh, that was reenacted. I don't think do you ever so. Happen, do you ever happen to catch that? So... So the story behind that is we were we were in Kauai and we were filming a uh, Trout Unlimited show in Kauai. There's an actual TU chapter in Hawaii, and um, and we'd gotten largely rained out of this production, and you know we hadn't caught any trout. We went peacock bass fishing, um, and so we were we had to pull the plug on the shoot, and we're sitting there watching it just pour rain. I mean, it was just a torrential torrential downpour. And we're sitting there in the bar of the hotel, hanging out. We got, you know, now we're just, we got a day to kill um, till our flight leaves. And and so we're sitting there and we we concoct this idea that we're going to go film the the 50-year storm sequence, you know, the, the final scene in Point Break out in front of the hotel in the ocean. And so so we're, we're in the process of putting that together. And who walks in the lobby? But Johnny Zandonati. <laughs> Unbelievable. Classic, yeah, yeah. So we hired him on the spot to play, um, you know, the stand-in um, who's holding the umbrella and, and tells Keanu Reeves not to go down there because it's death on a stick. So you'll have to go back and look for that, man, uh, and, and catch his cameo. That's, yeah, that's he killed it. Johnny Z, though, just, you know, he would just show up at all the right times and, and was was always down for an adventure. Isn't that classic Johnny Z? Yeah. You make it back to the Deschutes much? You know, man, I went there um, two years ago uh, for the first time in a while. And, uh, well, no, actually, I fished it uh, last December. Um I went down and, and trout nymphed uh, Mecca for a couple hours with a buddy of mine. Oh, nice. um, yeah, it was really cool. I hadn't fished that stretch in a long time. And, you know, it was nice to kind of see it. Uh, it. It looked the same to me. I'd heard all these rumors of, you know, habitat destruction and how you wouldn't recognize the river and everything. And so, um, I mean, it was December, but uh, right. but it looked it looked the same to me and it fished the same as it always had. Nice, nice. Yeah, I think the only thing I've noticed when I revisit is, you know, the eddy fishery just not being what it was due to the all the osprey nests everywhere. But it seems to fish. Oh, is fine. that right? Yeah. Remember how you used to be able to just almost call it out, coming around a bend, and just be like, "Hey, everybody, look over at this eddy. You know, we're going to see feeding feeding fish." And um, I, I felt like when I was running the river full full time, I just sort of watched that disappear. Huh, and that's and you're you're uh, attributing that uh, partly to the abundance of ospreys. I think so. Yeah, they, there was just so many habitats that were introduced to the to the area, and you know, there's just a lot more osprey than there used to be. Oh, interesting, huh? Fish, I haven't the heard fish that had theory. To kind man. of hunker a little more into the trees, so it made it just different. I remember catching a lot more fish in wide open eddies than than nowadays, where you got to really get into the jungle. Huh. Interesting. Okay. That's cool. Um, yeah, most of, you know, the rhetoric I hear centers around the, um, the selective water withdrawal tower, of course, and, and the fact that, you know, that has killed off some of the bug, bug life or altered the bug life. And so there's, you know, not fish 
feeding on caddis every day in the summer like there used to be, for example. Um, But, huh, that's interesting. The bird of prey thing um, may be a factor as well, huh? Yeah, that definitely, I mean, that started it. But that that fish passage definitely is is the front and center, um, you know, there. I remember I was still on the water pretty regularly as they were getting that essentially turned on and learning the program. And it was amazing how, how, how we learned how important that water temperature was. You know, there'd be times where they would accidentally release a bunch of cold water and you would have like the greatest steelheading you could ever imagine. And then you'd get off the river <laughs> and you'd be like, oh yeah, whoops. Yeah, it turns out they, they accidentally dropped the temperature to like 58 degrees and it was, you know, 64 the day before. So the fish were just stroked, just stoked. And, uh, right. So it was interesting to see how they can literally turn that fishery on and off with interesting with the switch there. Yeah, that's crazy, man. We um, we went and did a Trout Unlimited show about that whole project um, when it was still in the design phase, and um, and it was you know it was one of those things. It was it was super interesting to 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 hear um, the plan, the strategy, the science, the engineering. But it kind of left you wondering, like, wow, is this really going to work? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seemed I, pretty daunting to, to, to alter the current of an entire lake. And that's just one part of it. Um, I, I think the, yeah, the, um, the, the rise in temperature seemed like, uh, seemed like a side effect that maybe they hadn't accounted for. Yeah, yeah. There, I think there was a... A lot, a lot that was was learned over the over time. I, I think they're still <laughs> trying to still trying to figure it out a little bit. And um, I know that there's some a lot of the local anglers are still trying to work with the dam uh, management and, and try to find a good balance. Yeah, I you know I I obviously it's closed now, but I I felt almost a little guilty going steelhead fishing over the last few years, um, and I did go two years ago. And, and and caught a really nice fish and and had a great great time um but uh yeah it's kind of hard to to justify for me and i'm not speaking for anyone but myself here but to to justify going steelhead fishing you know even before they closed it just given the low numbers and you know the fact that wow here i've gotten i've been fortunate enough to enjoy some really great steelheading in my life um, I don't think I need to be greedy at this point and go um, hassle these fish that are struggling to survive. Where do you kind of where, where where are your thoughts on that? Have you been steelheading at all? You last know, few I years? haven't. Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. So my last steelhead trip, uh, I, I made the mistake of getting married at the last week of September, and then my first Ooh, born yeah. was the first weekend or first week of October. So I really threw a wrench in the program for, for the sweet spot of steelhead season. Um, but I went up to Canada uh, to an undisclosed location and learned that we just didn't have any fish in the lower 48 and that they weren't mythological critters with, you know, high education. Uh, we just didn't have any because we caught so many up in Canada. And then, um, and I honestly, I never, I have not, swung for steelhead since and that was in 2013 oh wow um, yeah you're yeah. on a real hiatus yeah I, I you know yeah it's just hard to motivate with so many other fisheries that 
are doing better um, and, and other places in the world and you know just trout fishing and I miss it I was thinking about revisiting the water next year just more as a nostalgic trip just to stand yep. waist deep in the water and walk for 30 or 40 miles but you know um, yeah I, I miss it and it's it's unfortunate that that there's just not not the fishery that we got to have you know like the morning you were talking about when we met you know those those yeah. those are the days you know wake up early run down from town go smash three or four fish on a skater and then go up run a whitewater trip i mean that was that was living that was living man the whitewater gig you know i i wish i would have known how good i had it because that was my first job on the deschutes too i was whitewater guiding for ewing's whitewater yeah and uh and it was awesome, man. I would go down and camp at Rattlesnake, and I'd fish every morning, go do my work trips, be back down there by 4.30 or 5, and hit the evening, and it was heaven. Yeah, yeah. You get a couple hours in the morning when the shade was on the water, and then, yeah, sun comes up. You don't want to go fishing anyway, so go make some money, get a tip, and then, uh, yeah, head right back to the water yep. and, and fish that evening shade, and yeah, that was that was an amazing routine that I think I capitalized on it pretty well. I don't think I have any regrets of not fishing <laughs> more, <laughs> but I miss it. Those, those were fun days and it's unfortunate yeah. to see the fishery no longer like that. You know, I won't be taking my son on a father son steelhead trip anytime. I don't think. I know. I know it's kind of heartbreaking to think that way, but uh, that's what we're staring at right now anyway. Yeah, man, you've you've been a lot of places. Um, where where you know you mentioned Jurassic Lake. What are what are what are some of the more I know I know this question always gets people and, and myself included. Like, you know, where's your favorite place? It's well, where I'm going next. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but do you are there any any events that stand out? Any fish that you caught or or shenanigans uh, that that you experienced that uh, that stand out from the rest in your adventures? You know, I mean, you know, yeah, every trip's got cool memories and, you know, Alaska, I've been going there for so long as a, as a snowboarder, as a photographer, as a fly fisherman, Alaska's just been the pinnacle kind of in, in those, those three genres. So I, I kind of lose track, but last I tried to count, I think I've gone to Alaska like 34 times in like 20 wow. years. Damn. Um, so I never tire of that place. Um, whether it's a, you know, the same river or same mountain range I've been going to, or it's, it's a new one. It's, it's always a fun place to go. Um, so that's, I always get excited for anything Alaska, but you know, recently we did, uh, that's cool to hear you say that we did a trip to the TV show to the Ackland islands, which is like the outer Southern chain of islands in the Bahamas. We were like, I think 80 miles from Cuba mm. and uh, really fun. Um, it didn't, the comfort of getting there was sort of, it, it threw us for a curve because once we got on that island, it's 500 square miles of weightable flats with a population of like 300 people. So it was actually more remote than anywhere I've ever been in Bush, Alaska. Um, you know what what we had was you know 
what was ordered that arrived on the boat, you know, the month previous. And the exploration of that, that area was really, really cool. You know, we didn't see another boat, not another angler, not another footprint for 10 days while we were there. And so those are, those are the trips that really get my, my juices flowing and just self-guiding, you know, having a spot. Yeah, you can't beat that. Yeah, especially in the saltwater environment, you know, not, not being yelled at or told what to do. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny, man. There's, that's a, I guess a, an idea, a belief, a, a feeling that more and more anglers have, you know, that are experienced anglers like yourself and, and, you know, my buddies that have fished for a long time, they, they won't go saltwater guided anymore. They're no. like, yeah, well, if you can put together a trip where we can go fish by ourselves, yeah, we'll do it. And I, and I feel really the same way too. Um, I mean, I've had some awesome saltwater guided trips, don't get me wrong, but, um, oh, but most definitely. you know, eat, yeah, yeah, but even beyond the, you know, the the fact that yeah, some some guides will straight up yell at you and take away from the experience. It's just it's kind of fun to to figure it out on your own and, you know, pass or fail based on on, you know, just kind of your own your own know-how, which to me is somewhat limited, but it's sure fun when I succeed in the salt. Yeah, and I I think anybody like yourself and myself the the amount of years we've had a fly rod in hand for me at least like i look for the challenges like i I don't fish the easy places anymore like i I only want to fish if it's going to be a really hard cast or a tricky some 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 sort of challenge like i want to i want to still learn and and so i don't i don't want to go to an easy fishery and not that being guided in the salt makes it easy but when you don't have a guide it just does a whole another layer of, of challenge that's really cool it's just truly hunting um, by yourself. It's just, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. Yeah, so the, that trip to the Acklands, um, what all What all did you find there? Like giant bones, permit, tarpon, um, everything? Not big bones, but like more bones than you know what to do with. Um, and not spooked. Like I literally caught bonefish with just a leader cast on multiple accounts. Um, and then you know what really I fell in love with and I I still I'm I'm sure you hear this everybody talks about it but the barracuda I do not Uh, understand why that is not like the king of the flats Um, totally (laughs) we would I would I went everywhere had an eight weight for the bones but I had a ten weight strung up in the small of my back and anytime you'd see a cuda they just sit there so you had time to switch rods and yeah. we fished poppers, and I mean, really, awesome. yeah. The fight was tenfold of any steelhead. You know, you watch a three, three foot, four foot long fish jump all the way out of the water and rip you deep into your backing on a ten weight after a huge surface eat. I mean, it 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 just didn't get any better. So I I, I was really just all about the cuda on that trip, but can't wait for a return. Well, uh, all right, man. You, you got to throw me a bone on that one. That's my favorite thing too. Um, and you know, I haven't done a ton of cuda fishing. I haven't done a ton of successful cuda fishing, but um, I've done enough of it to know that it is. It, it, I agree with you. They're they're the ultimate. Like it's just like you said. It's so cool because they hover, and you know, as long as you don't do anything totally stupid, you're probably going to get a pretty good shot at them. 
So you've got that awesome sight, sight fishing hunting element. And yeah, the, the eat is insane. And then uh, I've had them break my fly line in half, um, you know, bite through 30 pound tippet. They'll destroy your shit. Yeah. Yeah. Carrying, you know, I, I brought a bunch of the uh, tieable uh, wire leader, thankfully, because I was, yeah, they just, they mashed through the wire leaders, our flies. I'm looking at two of them right now that they're hanging on my wall that, you know, I got half a popper hanging on on my wall and the front half of it's just completely missing from from the cuda on that trip my office i actually have like a a wall of fame so to speak with flies that were from memorable trips all over the world certain fish and certain trips that just that was the fly that signifies the trip for me oh man that's epic um did you did you get like a a four footer in or yeah, I think the biggest we put to hand was, you know, like 25 pounds or so, at, you know, solid four footer. Um, smallest was maybe three feet. I mean, the smallest CUDA was maybe 15 pounds and the biggest was in the 20s. Wow. They were all really Damn. large fish. God, that sounds amazing. Yeah, just a, yeah, you couldn't have asked for anything better. But the, and the fight was... Yeah, once 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 I got into the CUDA, I, I really just kind of gave up on the bones, and uh, you know we're always looking for permit, which we saw a few, but I, I look forward to a return trip, um, possibly this May, and I'll be be diehard on the CUDA this year for sure. Awesome, man. You know sometimes they're just so damn smart they won't eat. Like I, uh, I was in the Keys a, a month ago. And, you know, the CUDA there would not, they, they were not playing our game at all. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, it seems like sometimes, and I don't know if it's their mood. I'm sure, I know fishing pressure has something to do with it. We all know that. CUDA are pretty intelligent fish, but they're yeah. quick learners. But, but um, I don't know. It's, it's, they're, they're a lot, I don't know if you fish for pike much, but I do a lot of pike fishing and they're, they're similar to pike, like, you know, sometimes pike just are not in the mood for whatever reason. And then you can go back a day or two later and the same fish will, will crush your fly as soon as it sees it. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. I did some pike fishing for the TV show actually up in uh, Saskatchewan. And uh, yeah, someday, one day was just, you know, lights on, you know, just they were looking up and they wanted to eat anything on the surface. And you went back the next day and it was like, where'd the fish go? Just Right. Right. And yeah, and, you know, Cuda and Pike are awfully similar um, in, you know, how they take the fly, kind of how they approach the fly. They'll follow it right to the rod tip. Sometimes you got to speed it up, yeah. to get them to eat it. Um, and, you know, in both instances, they do that awesome full body eat and it's game on. Um, and damn, they're both good eating. I know in those Atlantic waters, you're not supposed to eat them, but I've I've had barracuda in Belize and stuff, and they're delicious. Yeah, I remember eating them in Belize years ago as well. We didn't eat them in the Bahamas, but but we had them multiple times in in Belize when I went down. And really good tasting. Yeah, they've got they've got it all for sure. Every every yeah. component I'm looking for in a game fish, no doubt. Yeah, I think I think these days that's anything saltwater. That's really what what gets me most most motivated is is just it's just so much to learn and, uh, and, and challenging and, and every trip I do, I learn so much more and also see how much more there is in terms of the species and, 
and everything. It's uh, definitely, I think, where I'm trying to spend more of my personal time, if, if, if I have any, is thinking about saltwater trips. Well, awesome, man. Well, I know you got a lot to do. I won't take up any more of your time, Abe. Um, what's the best way for folks to learn more about you and your work? You know, probably just um, my my social media, my website. I'm a really easy, accessible person to find, but it's just basically Abe Blair. You just type that into Google. But that's my handle on Instagram. My website is ablair.com. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find. And really like I said, really active on the social so people um enjoy you know following along this morning i did another story in a reel time lapse footage of me running around trying to get the photo this morning and so yeah pretty easy to find go to the februaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests their fishing stories and favorite fly patterns we're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns. And if you have one to spend, shoot us an email at info at the The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.